Guys, what's going on? Welcome back to another ESL podcast. Man, I'm your host, Arsenio, as usual. And today, we have a very, very close listening. First and foremost, my podcast has hit 10,000, well, probably 11,000, probably 12,000 plays over the last 30 days because of a wonderful uh, Malaysia. So big shout out to all my wonderful Malaysians out there in KL, Bandar, Selangor, uh, Shah Alam. Man, I am so grateful for all of you out there. Finally, man, I've been trying to break into Malaysia for the longest. And finally, here it is. So big thank you to all of you out there. And of course, Japan, another massive spurt. Big shout out to all of you guys and just everyone in general. Um, Man, I just can't, I can't believe, I can't fathom the fact that my podcast is finally you know, it has risen to the, to where it needs to be, to where it has always needed to be, if that's uh, even a correct tense. But nonetheless, just wanted to give a nice warm welcome and a big, uh, and express my gratitude to everyone out there for supporting and listening to me. Thank you so much. So in saying that, make sure you guys follow me on Instagram because I put a lot of things on Instagram too. Okay, you would get you would get podcasts in video form there before you get it on here. All right. And follow my Facebook page. So check the links down below. Make sure you follow me. Okay. now in saying that listening to and interpreting idioms, we have a listening today. It's going to be about surfing. It's going to be a program. There's a nice little matching, of course, on the website. And what you're going to do is you're going to match the sentence parts to the summary of the program. So number one, the host introduces. Number two, the writer identifies, the writer outlines. This is a very academic process. So I'm not going to recite it out loud for you. You can go on over to my uh, blog, thearseniobuckshow.com to check that out, to, you know, again, figure out what the answers are and come back to me and say, hey, I did your exercise on your blog. Can you tell me if they're correct? And then I'll be more than happy to check them, okay? Now, before we get into the listening, what I want to do is listen, listening to and interpreting idioms, okay? Because the second part of this exercise is going to be about idioms such as dicing with, to bursting, uh, bug, striking it, don't cry over spilled milk, an arm and a leg. There's a lot of different idioms that you're going to hear in here, and it's about surfing, okay? So, Again, they're fixed expressions, images, and metaphors that describe things. So let me give you an example. Nerves of steel, okay? Nerves of steel, meaning they must have had all the courage in the world to complete the task that was at hand. So it's kind of like the guy that walks, you know, uh, 80 stories up on a little rope with a balancing, uh, what is it, a big balancing pole to go from one building to another. That's nerves of steel. People who do sky, uh, what is it, skydiving, right? Is that what it's called? I was going to say sky jumping. <laughs> I was going to say smoke jumpers too. Oh my God. I haven't heard that in years. But skydiving, they must have nerves of steel. People who go to Mount Everest to, again, summit that massive, just a massive mountain in general, they must have nerves of steel also. So idioms can be difficult for all of you language learners, even us native English speakers, okay? Because the connections between image and idea may not be immediately obvious, okay? So idioms in the learner's own language may be, or may use different ideas and images. So nerves of steel may mean a completely different thing in your language, right? 
But despite the differences, it's possible to deduce the meaning of the expression. So what you need to do, there are three things you could do, bullet point. Think about the context the idiom was used in, okay? So that's the sentence. This is what I do with my TOEFL ITP learners here in upcountry Korat in Thailand. I tell them, you don't need to know the idiom. Just listen to how they respond to it. Sometimes the expression and what the idiom means comes before it or after it. Sometimes it's just completely out of hand, right? And then you're just going to have to make an educated guess. But that's one bullet point. Number two, consider the actual meaning of words in the idiom. Bullet point number three, look for connections and relationships with the context. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to screen share. And this screen share basically gives you the ability to listen to what I'm going to be listening to. And again, what I'm listening to is what you're going to be listening to. And what we're going to be listening to is this wonderful listening. Now, again, I like speaking about the listening. That's what I'm going to be doing. You're going to do the exercises in terms of listening for main points and listening to interpreting idioms. All right, so with that being said, guys, man, let's get into this wonderful listening. I'm not sure how long it is, seven minutes. Hello from a wet and windy beachfront where we're on location at the annual surfing competition. Today, we have three guests, all surfing experts. First up, we have Oliwa Kalani, an academic and the author of Catching the Wave, an exploration of the history and culture of surfing. Hello, Oliwa, and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. So, your book, Catching the Wave, was a passion for you, I believe. I must say, I found it a fascinating read. Thank you. Uh, yes, it's an interesting subject, and yes, I am passionate about it. Probably something to do with my own Hawaiian roots. Surfing is part of our national identity. But, you know, a lot of people, even surfers, have some strange ideas about where surfing came from. They think it started in Australia or California sometime in the 1950s. In fact, it goes way back, hundreds of years before then. And it's certainly not Californian. So where did it start? Well, some form of surfing has probably been practiced for as long as humans have been swimming. But the modern art of surfing was first seen by Joseph Banks on board the HMS Endeavor in the 18th century when the ship stopped in Tahiti in the Polynesian Islands. That seems to be the birthplace of surfing, and the activity certainly predates that first glimpse foreigners had of it. Tahitians have been surfing for centuries. It had been part of ancient Polynesian culture. They called it Inalu, and it was practiced mainly by the ruling class. Traditionally, the chief was chosen because he was the best surfer with the best board made of the best wood, such as koa wood, on the best beaches, which the ordinary Tahitians weren't allowed to use. But it wasn't so much a sport then as a kind of spiritual event, almost a religion. They saw it as taming the ocean gods. Dicing with death was an important part of the activity. Rich or not, they must have had nerves of steel, given the size of the waves and the design of the boards, which were actually made to be difficult to maneuver. That's fascinating. It's funny how we see it as a more modern, fun teenage activity. I've never heard about its mystical origins. 
I'd like now to introduce our second guest today, Jen Dougherty. Jen, you're off in a few minutes to compete. That's right. It's a good day for it. Some big waves. Yes, it should be a great spectacle. So, Jen, you've won over 20 international surfing titles in a 10-year career. Can you tell the listeners what inspired you to make surfing a career? Well, I don't know exactly, but it really started when my family moved to Cornwall in England, a surfer's paradise. Before that, I lived in a seaside town in Portugal where there were some good waves. Every summer, the town filled to bursting with surfers from all over the world. Australians, Swiss, everyone came to ride the waves. I loved to watch them, and I suppose that's when the bug bit. Anyway, in Cornwall, whenever I could, I'd borrow a board and have a go. At about that time, I heard about Margot Oberg, who really inspired me. She became the first female professional surfer in the same year that professional contests started, 1975. And I think before that, I'd read an article about the first superstar surfer, Kelly Slater, which kind of caught my attention. So eventually, I persuaded my parents to let me have my own board, and I started entering competitions. But as there weren't any for kids, I had to compete against adults, men and women, actually. I got my first sponsor when I was 16, and since then I've spent all my time chasing the waves all over the world. Is there much money in the sport? Eh, enough to get by, but it's not like tennis or golf. Only a handful of surfers ever strike it rich. But basically, as long as you keep winning or getting on the podium, it's viable as a profession. You can find sponsors, and the prize money helps too. But you'll find 99% of us do it because we wouldn't want to do anything else. There's nothing like the feeling of getting on a big roller and riding it. The power of the water, the sense of being together with nature at its most awesome, most dangerous. It's a strange sport in a way, because the more adverse the conditions, like today, the happier we are. My family worry at times, and one of my friends says I'm crazy to take the risks I do. But I say it feels so natural for us surfers to do it, so it would be wrong not to do it, right? <laughs> the feeling of throwing caution to the wind, getting on the biggest, most dangerous waves, that's when the adrenaline kicks in. Sure, we fall, we sometimes end up in the surf, and that's scary for sure, but we don't cry over spilled milk. We wait for the next wave and we get right back up again. That's just how surfers are. I'd surf for free if necessary, but it's a great career because you spend all your time with fellow surfers who are a friendly crowd. It's competitive, but also a community. It's thriving at all levels, actually, probably because it's a comparatively cheap hobby for beginners to take up. And it... How much does a board actually cost? They can cost an arm and a leg for professionals. I have a carbon fibre one, which is amazing and very expensive, well over $1,000. But the gains are pretty marginal, really. A polyurethane board covered in fibreglass cloth gets the job done just fine for about three or $400. The dimensions of boards vary a lot, which also affects the price. Hold on, everyone. Okay, so there might have been a little bit of a glitch because the Wi-Fi in this place really sucks. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to reshare. I saw something just completely clunk out. So I do apologize for the audio. I might clean it up afterwards. 
but I guess it's the beauty of living up country. So here we go. We're not going to complain, but let's just keep it going. I'm going to rewind about 40 seconds. It's an arm and a leg for professionals. I have a carbon fiber one, which is amazing and very expensive, well over $1,000. But the gains are pretty marginal, really. A polyurethane board covered in fiberglass cloth gets the job done just fine for about three or $400. The dimensions of boards vary a lot, which also affects the price. But for me, the most important thing is to have a board I can absolutely rely on. But aren't surfboards that are made of wood better? They're more natural. That's how people have always done it. According to Oliwa, right? No, I mean, you can still get a wooden board, but using artificial materials was a quantum leap in surfboard construction. You ended up with stronger boards that were much lighter and easier to manoeuvre. This massively changed the sport in recent years. I see. And one last question before you go. Are you going to win this afternoon? <laughs> to be honest, your guess is as good as mine. Part of it is just the luck of the draw, who gets the best waves, but I certainly hope to be in contention. Good luck. I'm sure you will be. We'll certainly be cheering for you. Now, our third guest is Bob Taylor. Bob is a music critic with... All right, guys. So in saying that, okay, so what we're going to do is first let's talk about some idioms. So again, I do apologize for my internet going completely uh, haywire, but hopefully this all comes together. I'm gonna delete some things and notes. So bug bit, guys, the bug bit meaning that's when it all began, right? This is what happened in 2009 when I traveled to Australia for the first time. That's when the travel bug bit. This is when I knew that staying in America was no longer uh, suitable for me. I realized that the world was so vast. There was so much out there for the taking. And that's when I just took that leap of faith. So you guys have to understand, again, the bug bit is when that's when something began. Something uh, uh, monumental had begun, right? So that's number one, okay? Number two, adrenaline junkie. So again, you talk, you hear about surfers, right? And surfers, you know, they're over here. First and foremost, I love the wave sounds in the, uh, in the background, just amazing. But when it comes to surfers, they're kind of like skydivers, right? They need that adrenaline. I'm not sure when I covered that. What if that, I know that was in an episode for sure that had to be in season five, because I remember, um, and it's about why is it that children, they, they have that, 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 impulse, that sudden adrenaline to do something and drive very fast. This is what happens out here in Thailand. Listen, I just went to 7-Eleven. There was a kid standing there. He was about 13 years old. I ended up walking home. This kid ended up zooming past me at unforeseen speeds with no helmet. This is the unfortunate, uh, you know, this is the unfortunate road that a lot of uneducated or let's just say ill-advised or the lack of common sense young individuals have. They have that sense of speed, but they're completely numb to the fact that it could possibly kill them. So surfing, and she mentioned Portugal having the biggest waves ever, you know, they know that it could kill them. They know that they could be attacked by sharks. They know that they could possibly have things that could protect them from jellyfish, but they could still die. Uh, but they still do it anyways, right? It's kind of like Mount Everest. Mount Everest, the, po the possibility of you dying is pretty high. And so 
again, I'm going to have to rip that audio from a podcast I've done before uh, in terms of David Morrill, uh, you know, scaling Mount Everest. So you guys can hear that remarkable story. Uh, and he actually scaled Aconcagua in Argentina. Um, what is it? Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, just below the Serengeti. Uh, in Alaska, every continent in the world, he scaled the highest ones, including Antarctica. So in saying that, to top this podcast off, don't cry over spilled milk. Now, what happens with spilled milk? If you spill milk or water or any liquid for that matter into a drain, can you get it back? No, it's gone forever. So don't cry over spilled milk, meaning it is gone forever. Don't even mention it. It's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. It's kind of like when you make a mistake and you keep going back to it and you keep saying, man, I wish I would have done it. I wish I would have. 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 No, stop crying over spilled milk. That is an idiom. So with that being said, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. If you guys want to get into further discussions, again, Patreon is available. I'm going to start putting more lessons on there. Um, And again, if you feel that, you know, you've gotten so much from me and you enjoy it so much and you would like to, you know, you know, uh, what is it, donate, or you would like to have like exclusive lessons, Patreon, again, there are different badges that are available. So make sure you tune into my link down below in the description. And in saying that, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another ESL podcast. I'm your crazy host as usual. Stay tuned for more over and out.